We are in Isaiah this morning, carrying on. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 14 this morning. We're going to go for a few more weeks in Isaiah, and then we're going to transition back to the New Testament for a while, and we'll come back and finish up uh, in Isaiah later on uh, in the year. But we are in chapter 14 this morning. We're going to be in verses 12 through 15 specifically, but let me speak about Isaiah's chapter 13 through 27. That block of chapters, it's 14 chapters, is a series of prophetic judgments. It's one of those passages, that one of those series of passages that when you read through them, when you're trying to read through your Bible, it gets tough. You're like, wow, this is a lot. A lot of woe unto this person and woe unto that person and difficult things. But what is happening is very important because over and over, the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the coming of the day of the Lord for these various uh, nations. It speaks of Babylon in chapter 13, much talk of Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Egypt, Cush, Tyre, and Sidon. These are all the enemy nations that were around Israel that were coming against them in various times and in various ways. And what is being said is that until all the enemies of God are defeated and all who trust in him are safe in Zion, and as we'll see next week, that even death itself is defeated, that the Lord God is at work. And so what we have here is a prophetic word going out saying this is going to happen before it happens. And that's really important because when Isaiah says that something is going to happen before it happens and then it comes to pass in the way that he said it was going to, it's not just a bunch of chaos on the world scene. It is in fact the Lord God working out his will and his purposes in the world. And one of the greatest difficulties of of ministry, one of the great things that I'm always trying to convince you of, is that the providence of God is in fact directing the issues of the world. That this world is not out of control. It is not a tumbling forward of just human events and things working out. But that the Lord is working out his plan according to his will. And for these people at this time, it was very important that these 14 chapters be spoken of by Isaiah, related to the things that were to come, that they might know beforehand what the Lord was doing so that he might demonstrate his power in so doing those things. But buried in the middle of this is an important few verses that we're going to look at this morning. And these verses matter. They have been important to Christianity ever since they were spoken. And we need to look at them this morning to help understand them and then give us a context for other things that we might live for Christ today in our time. So we're going to read Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. 
So this passage this morning is coming after chapter 13, which talks specifically about judgment to come on the nation of Babylon. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 19, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans shall be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. That Babylon, who is, is at that time ascending in strength and power, is going to be brought down by the Lord God. And that these verses primarily speak of the king of Babylon and his desire to be proud and to elevate himself with willful pride. There are five statements here in verse 13 going into 14. I will statements. I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly, which is a high and exalted place. I will ascend above the heavens to the heights of the clouds. All of this, which sounds exactly like what he means in the end of verse 14, I will make myself like the most high. This is a person who thinks that they can reach the place of almighty God. And so um, he who has fallen is striving to take a place on high. This is uh, an important series of verses because of of verse 12. Verse 12 is very important. And we're going to look at a little bit at the history of this. If any of you are reading from the King James Bible this morning, verse 12 read differently than what I read to you this morning. And so we have to get into this and figure out what is going on here because there's history to this verse. If you have a King James this morning, it reads like this in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Whereas what I read to you, the English Standard Version says, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground? So how do we end up with such different translations in two English Bibles? Well, there's history here. In the first century, St. Jerome translated all of the Bible into Latin, which became known as the Vulgate. Uh, Latin was very important to Roman Catholic scholarship, and as you know, uh, for many, many centuries, or for many, many years, I should say, the, the Roman Catholic Mass was conducted in Latin. There are still places today where the, the Roman Catholic Mass is conducted in Latin, where people can't understand what's being said, and I'm not going to get into that. But Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, and it became a very important scholastic translation of the Bible. And many people use that Latin Vulgate to then translate other things or to do research in theological writing. Well, his translation of the Hebrew word that relates to a star or a shining one there in verse 12, he translated as Lucifer, which means light bearer. It's the Latin word for light bearer. Now that word has come to take on all kinds of other connotations for us. But that's what it means in Latin. And at that time, Lucifer or light bearer was also a name for the star Venus. I'm sorry, the planet Venus, which is the the day star. What happens with the planet Venus is that it's uh, rising into the sky. It doesn't reach the zenith of its uh, place in the sky until after the sun has already risen in the sky. So when the sun rises and the star rises, it eventually fades out because it's, it's over overwhelmed by the strength of the sun, but it was known as the day star. And so these two things kind of come together, but what we have here is the choice of translation driving interpretation. Uh, 
Because what ought to happen in a Bible translation and what happens in all good Bible translations, faithful Bible translations, I should say, is that they go back to the oldest manuscript, the oldest ancient manuscript, and try to derive a translation from that to current English so that we can understand these things. And there is a reason why the word Lucifer has not been carried over into faithful modern translations because that is not a translation of the Hebrew. That's a carryover from the Latin into what we have in English. And it's misguiding. If you go to a concordance or you go to your um, little Bible app that you have and search Lucifer, you will not find that word anywhere in English Bibles today because it's not a, a helpful word in understanding what is here. So, does that mean that the devil doesn't exist? Not at all. I'm just trying to point out this particular uh, passage that you can understand why there is a significant discrepancy. And that certain modern translations, good modern translations, are going back to ancient manuscripts to derive a faithful rendering so that we can then wrestle with the most clear wording that is before us. All right. So, because of this, many Bible teachers see nothing of Satan in this passage. So when we change that, trans that translation back to something that is more faithful to what the original manuscripts are, and it removes this name that had so many connotations along with it, some people will say, well, this only deals with the king of Babylon and has nothing to do with Satan. And that is not my understanding. I think that this passage has to do with both things. That it primarily has to do with the king of Babylon, but the king of Babylon and Babylon as an empire is symbolic throughout the scriptures as a kingdom of evil, led by a king of evil. Uh, Babylon appears in Revelation as a symbolic kingdom of evil that will be overthrown ultimately, because none of us are under the illusion that the king of Babylon was acting on his own behalf. All throughout the scriptures, we see both spiritual evil and Satan himself acting as an influence upon the kingdoms of the world. Though the king of Babylon had these lofty and blasphemous thoughts, very similar to Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king of Babylon. You can go read about this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, where he gets up on his rooftop and says, I am the greatest person in the world. I'm like God. Look at all that I've made. And the Lord strikes him down from his high place in all of his pride. These thoughts do not originate in Babylon. I would argue to you today that this relates to the spirit of Babylon. What is the spirit of Babylon? It is that which comes from the devil. Because the devil himself was the one who first had these ideas. And I believe he is the one being referred to here as having fallen from heaven. He who is seeking to ascend to the heights to become like a god. And the spiritual influence or the spiritual temptation that comes to us from evil influences our heart. And these are not thoughts that originate only with us, but there is real spiritual evil in the world. Satan as an adversary of the Lord and of his church. Satan, who we are told in scripture, is the prince of this world system and is real. Though unseen, he is the ruler of successive ungodly world powers of which Babylon was the first. We spent a lot of time talking about this when we went through the book of Daniel. And the succession of Babylon and Greece and Rome, all of these ungodly empires that specifically are against Christ and his church and which are unseated and destroyed by the Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a study worth entering into in your time. 
But Satan is the first in these rebellious ways. He is the first to influence the kingdoms of the world, to hate the Lord and to struggle against him and to rise up in pride and in ungodliness. And there's a very important verse that Jesus speaks that relates to these verses that we see here today, especially the first part of verse 12. And that is Luke chapter 10. It's always important to see what Jesus has to say and the way that it relates to the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, we have a scene where Jesus has sent out 72 of his disciples to preach, which is more than the 12 series of followers. He sends them out to go and start preaching and teaching who he is and what he is. And they return to Jesus and they're overjoyed. Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a powerful statement of spiritual authority and what is going on with people that are followers of Jesus Christ. And so they're excited as to what has happened and what is happening when they go out and speak about Jesus to other people and it's never happened like this with them before and that's because they've never gone out in the power of Jesus before. They've only gone out in their own power. And he starts out by stating that Satan has fallen. It's a mysterious statement from the past, but it's something of Jesus Speaking of Satan, though of brilliant light, like lightning falling from heaven, being expelled from heaven, cast down from heaven, exiled, expelled. Fallen is important. That the word fallen and the, the, the idea of something falling is very important to the Bible. As we have the fall of Satan first, then we have the fall of humanity. And this is not just a directional like you actually fell down. It's speaking to unseating something from glory. Something of high exaltation. Something that is worthy now being unworthy. And something that was perfect. Something that was holy uh, now being not holy. Now entering into sin and taking a low place. And this verse begins with Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. It is the same language used in Isaiah chapter 14. And we know that throughout the scriptures, Satan is the one who is fallen. He is no longer a, a heavenly being. And with him, he took others rebelling against the Lord God, known as demons. So what I want us to do for the majority of this sermon this morning is to look at four questions. Who is Satan? What should we expect of him and how should we react to his presence? And fourth, what will be his final end? These are very important questions for us to answer. Let's look first at who is Satan? Satan is a source of spiritual evil in the world. He is the world, worldly spirit of Babylon. So this spirit of the world that was seeking to destroy the people of God and, and raise up evil in the world. It is this spirit. 
Satan seeks to glorify himself and to take away the glory of God. It's not a co-sharing agreement. He who has fallen is trying to raise himself up, back up again, that he might take from God the glory that is due his name and take the place and the seat of God. We see this most specifically in the temptation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament early in the Gospels. I have a lot of passages I'm just going to kind of mention today in the newsletter this week. I'm going to list all these things, so don't feel like you need to furiously uh, write a bunch of notes. But if this is interesting to you, which I think it should be, I encourage you to look some of these passages up because they're very important. Who is Satan? He is actively working to destroy the kingdom of God. The Bible says that he is the ruler of this world. John 14, 30, 16, 11, John 12, 31, all of them. Jesus speaks about Satan as being the ruler of this world, which is interesting. He is the one that has been given some degree of authority to rule in this fallen world. He is the God of this world, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, little g. It's, again, some measure and some degree of action that he has been given opportunity to function in this world. We're told in Hebrews 2, 14 that he has the power of death. Death is the final enemy. It is that which uh, destroys us. Uh, death is what is feared by all of us. It is the hope of eternal life that comes to us in Christ to overwhelm these things. And we're going to see next week this promise of overcoming death. But Satan brings with him the power of death. He is described in Luke 11 as an armed, strong man. In Ephesians chapter 2, the prince of this world. In 1 Peter chapter 5, as a prowling, roaring predator, as a lion, seeking to destroy you and others. That he has been sinning in rebellion from the beginning, 1 John chapter 3 says. And I think one of the most powerful summary verses as to who is Satan comes from John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 41 and following, Jesus says this in response to his enemies. John 8, 41. You were doing the works of your father, that you were doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I am from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's a very powerful passage. First of all, it's Jesus clearly recognizing that there is spiritual evil in the world and that Satan is real and that he has a place. He is an adversary. He is struggling against the people of this world and that he is a murderer. This takes us straight back to his first, probably second actions that we have recorded in the scripture is influence upon Cain to kill his brother with his own hands until he's covered in blood himself. 
He is a murderer. He is a liar. Not that he is a little bit of a liar. There is no truth in him. He is a deceiver through and through. When he speaks, he speaks lies and deception. This is who Satan is. Do you take these words of the Bible seriously? And many people do not. Many people see these things as allegory, as hearsay. I don't know any number of things that they think they are. or They just purely ignore them. Do you believe there really is one that has been expelled, one that has fallen from heaven, one that has been given a degree of dominion over this fallen world? Do you believe the evil of this world is arbitrary or that you yourself have a real adversary, one who is actively trying to come against you, actively coming against the church, actively trying to undermine the work of Jesus in the world? And my final question here related to Satan is, what happens any time in life where we underestimate our adversary in a struggle or a battle? What happens when you underestimate your adversary in a battle? Things do not go well. You tend to be unprepared and un, uh, uninterested in what is happening, and then you get overrun. It is absolutely necessary for us to take seriously the many, there's a reason why there's so many passages I'm mentioning this morning, and there could be three times more. The Bible is shot through with talking about the work of Satan, evil, and spiritual evil in the world. And yet so many people today do not take these things seriously at all. It's hard to ignore evil. But it's amazing how some people put on the plastic happy smile and act like nothing's going on. It's very hard for me to grasp because if there's any verifiable thing happening in this world that is spoken of in the scriptures, it is evil in the world. And yet, it is ignored so often. But the scriptures tell us that there is an adversary that is against us. What should we expect from this Satan? There is so much that could be said here, but I want to focus our attention on Genesis chapter 3. When we're looking at what should we expect from him who has been expelled from heaven and is now trying to raise himself back up to be like the Most High and overthrow the work of the Lord in the world, his work is summarized in the first encounter that we have with him in the scriptures, which is in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the temptation of Adam and Eve. And there are three basic things that I'll point out here very quickly. It's that... In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the very first time he encounters uh, Eve, he says this to her. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which is doubt. The first thing that our adversary does with us is to cause us to doubt the word of the Lord. Did God actually say these things? I don't know. Maybe I can't remember. I I, I thought he did. I'm pretty sure he did. But the sowing of doubt is very powerful. But the second thing in verse 4 is denial. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God has said, if you partake of this and you disobey me, you are going to die for sure. It's going to happen. And so doubt is sown in the mind of Eve and ultimately of Adam as well. You will not die. And it is a denial of what the Lord God has said. And then thirdly, there is direct lies in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The same language that we see in Isaiah chapter 14, the desire to be like God. We are the creature. 
We cannot be the creator. But Satan is the original one as the creature wanting to take the place of the creator and be like God. Anyone that tells you that you can take the place of God and enter into divinity is lying to you. And it is an ancient lie, a lie that was told to our first parents, which they fell into and they believed. It is doubt, it is denial, and it is direct lies. This is the exact same way that Satan works in the world today, works in your life and in mine and in this world. It is a recipe for temptation, deception, and ultimately damnation. As we see in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15, after wanting to make himself like the Most High, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Whether it be the king of Babylon or Satan himself, all those who raise themselves up saying, I want to be like God and be glorified and be honored in the way that only God is worthy of being honored, you will be brought down. You will not enter into this place of glory. It is very important for us to understand that even though in Genesis chapter 3, Satan begins this work by himself, he certainly does not finish it by himself. Because he is not like God in that he is not omnipotent or omnipresent or any of these things. He is a created being. And so when we look at all the evil in the world, there, is, there are three sources of evil that are spoken to us in the scriptures. It is the flesh and the world and then the devil and his demons. The flesh relates to our own corrupt hearts. Uh, if, we're if we're honest with ourselves, we know that so much of the temptation that comes to us just arises in our own heart because we're born into sin and we're corrupt and we struggle with our own selves. And when you put billions of sinners together and they're all struggling together, it turns into a mess. Because as the scriptures say, bad company corrupts good character. And when you have a bunch of sinners living together, it just, it just creates, a, it's a disaster. It's the world. But into that, there is the direct and real influence of Satan working in crucial places and in crucial times to stir the pot and press things over the edge in temptation towards evil. And we see this all over the place in the scriptures. So what should we expect from Satan? Doubt, denial, direct lies, and temptation pressing us on to overthrow the Lord and his work that we might glorify ourselves. Thirdly, how should we react to this? This is not good news so far. This is, this is a very like, negative sermon, all kinds of terrible things happening. You look in the news, you see this is real. How should we react to this? What is this supposed to mean to us in Christians? And this is the joy of the gospel. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we pass from death to life. And we pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pass out from underneath this authority given to Satan into this, in this world to no longer be enslaved to sin and enter into the kingdom of the Lord our God. And under his authority and under his banner, we are set free of these things. But what should we say to this? How should we react to all these things? In 1 Peter 5, we see so clear that we should expect a spiritual struggle. This is the passage that talks about Satan roaming around like a roaring lion. But we're told in 1 Peter 5, 9, that we must resist these things. And this is so important. We resist these things, as it says in 1 Peter, by our faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus, and because we believe his truth, we resist. 
Another very important passage related to this, and in the same vein, is James 4. We submit ourselves to God, we resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the the first part is the most important part, the submitting yourself to God. You and I, we have no power against such great spiritually evil things in the world. But when we submit ourselves by faith to the Lord God, we are coming under his strength and by his spirit able to resist these things. And it says that the devil will flee from us. Evil things will be driven out of our life, not by our own power, but by the work of the Lord in our life. One of the important passages related to this is Ephesians chapter 6, which talks about the the armor of God. And what this means is related to this idea of submitting yourself to God. When you come and say, Lord, I, I feel like I'm getting ready to be overwhelmed by all the evil that is around me and in my life and in my office and in my family or whatever it may be, when it just feels like it is pressing onto you in a way that is becoming overwhelming. When we submit ourselves to the Lord and call upon him and ask for strengthening of faith and of hope and of joy, it is as if the Lord armors our lives against the evil things that are around us. We are called in Ephesians chapter 4 to not give opportunity or influence to the devil. Don't give opportunity. You know what that's like. You know what it means when you open a door to evil in your life and you make an opportunity for something evil to enter into your life. The scriptures tell us very clearly to rid ourselves of those things. Close those doors so that temptation might not easily enter in. In Matthew chapter 6, in teaching us how to pray, Jesus reminds us that we ought to pray always to be delivered from evil and protected from temptation. It's a part of the Lord's prayer. It's something that ought to be a regular aspect of what we pray about. Lord, protect me from evil. Deliver me from temptation. Pray for those in your family. Pray for your friends that they might be delivered from all of these things. I want to read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think a summary verse related to what should we, how should we react to what the devil is doing in the world and spiritual evil that is around us all the time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What an important verse. You may feel like temptation around you is impossible and that you must give in to these things, but we're told in the scriptures that by his providence, the Lord is always opening a door of escape and that we may always enter into that and and escape what has come upon us. It is by the work of the Lord, it is by submission to his spirit and calling out to him that we might be strengthened in our own soul to make progress against sin in our own heart and against spiritual evil in the world. When we look at resisting and submitting and praying and closing doors of opportunity and and humbling ourselves before God and all this stuff, Are you doing any of these things regularly in your life to press out spiritual evil? 
When we know that there is a spiritual adversary, that there is a devil in this world, that there is great evil in this world pressing in against your soul, what are you doing to struggle against these things? Are you taking these things seriously? Is your life lived in submission to the Lord? Are you resisting these things? Are you praying? Are you fleeing from them? Do you care at all? Do you care about the eternal state of your soul and the souls of those who are around you? Do you know that you are not deceived? I think that's an interesting question. If Satan is a deceiver and he was effective in deceiving these great kings of old and effective in deceiving so many people in our day and age, what makes you think that you are not deceived? How do you know that you're not deceived? A person that is truly deceived doesn't realize that they're deceived. So how do we get past these things? Jesus comes declaring that he is the truth and that in him there is no darkness and that Satan is a liar and that in him there is no truth. So the first thing that I would press to you is that if you want to know that you are not deceived and that you are walking in the truth, get very near to Jesus. Read his word, hear his voice, listen to what he says, and believe his words. And you will see yourself coming out of deception and into truth and walking in the light. Number four, what will be the end of Satan? And this is really important because we live in the struggle right now. We live in the midst of one who has fallen and yet is trying to still exalt himself against the Lord and is still working every day to influence world leaders in our time to exalt themselves above the Lord that they might be honored and the things of Christ Jesus be thrown down. What will be the end of Satan that we see in the scriptures? It will be the same end that we see in verse 15 of chapter 14. And every person that exalts themselves against the Lord God, they will be brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, a very important passage about the separation of the righteous from the evil and the last judgment. It says, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's a powerful passage. There are others that are also entering into that damnation. But what Jesus says is that hell and its damnation was created for Satan and his demons. One of the things that is very important to recognize in your study of spiritual evil in the Bible is that there is no salvation provided for those rebellious angelic beings. Though Christ Jesus died for us, and his love for us is that we might enter into fellowship with him, that we might be forgiven of our rebellion and our sin and be called his friends and given an inheritance in his kingdom and adopted even as his children. But it is not so with the spiritually rebellious angels in the scriptures. It says that for their rebellion and for their casting down, there was prepared a place of damnation for them that they will one day be cast into. But until that end, they have been given a certain degree of permission. Job chapter 1 is one of the great chapters in the Bible that speaks about the permission given to Satan to act in the world. He comes and asks God to tempt Job and to come against him, to harm him. 
But it's seen so clearly in the first couple of chapters of Job how limited his authority is, as if he is a, a, a dog that's on a chain or something. He's able to be pulled back and completely under the authority of the Lord our God. The Lord limits his, limits his purposes and his actions in the world. And this is radically important. If you have never read the first couple of chapters of Job, I encourage you to do so. They're fascinating and eye-opening. Christians are no longer enslaved to sin. This is radically important. When we say what should we expect finally with Satan is that his authority and his power in the world will end. But for Christians, it has already ended. We do not live enslaved to sin as Christians. Though the presence of sin remains in this world, the power of sin has been broken over us. Those of you that have come to Christ as your Savior, many of you in this room have testimonies of how you used to be enslaved to sin. You were addicted to things that you could not stop. And no matter how much you tried, you could not get away from the sin that's so easily entangled. And only when you came to salvation in Jesus were you able to live in a different way because you had passed from one place to another. We know that in this life, we will continue to be tempted, to be distressed, to even be physically wounded and deprived and troubled by Satan who dogs us. But we will never be conquered and we will never be overwhelmed by evil in this life. It is a promise given to us and we see it worked out over and over in the scriptures. Though we struggle in this, after each temptation, we are raised up and ministered to, similar to the way that Jesus was. After a great temptation in his life, he was ministered to, strengthened, and raised up again against his adversary. And so will it be for you in Christ Jesus, that you will never be overcome by evil in this world. I love the benediction and the, the letter written to the church at Rome, one of the final things that Paul writes to this church to encourage them is with these words, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a powerful way of ending a letter, saying, I know you're struggling in so many ways right now, and he writes about all the salvation of Jesus, but it will not always be this way. Soon enough, Satan will be crushed, and the church will rise up over him. Finally, the ultimate end of he who deceives the nations, he who raises himself up against the Lord, who captures, I'm sorry, the creature who would become the creator, who, sh who should be worshiping, but instead wants to be worshiped, is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read to you Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. The same thing that he's always been doing, deceiving the nations from the king of Babylon down to this day. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is the end of Satan, our adversary. I don't know when the last time was you thought much about spiritual evil in this world. 
But I, I couldn't pass by this passage in Isaiah without speaking about these things. It's really important that we understand that kingdoms of old were influenced by these things, that they were influenced by spiritual evil. It's very important to understand that our time is influenced by spiritual evil, that we do have a real spiritual adversary that hates us, who is a liar, a deceiver, and a murderer. He has come to steal, to kill, and destroy, and will destroy you if he can. He has destroyed many before and is bringing them with him down to this final end of hell and damnation. But Christ Jesus has come as a savior. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all those who believe in his name will be forgiven of their sins and they will pass out of darkness into life and they will enter into the life of Christ Jesus and not into the end of Satan, but into eternal life with him. Jesus is the truth and he is the life and he will strengthen you against these things. And though your life may be buffeted in so many different ways, your heart will be filled with the joy of Christ as you abide with him day by day. I encourage you brothers and sisters to not be deceived, to read the scriptures often and with a prayerful heart, to believe in Christ Jesus that you might share in his life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. It's a sobering thing as every one of us can think about ways in which we know that either ourselves or our friends, our family members, our nation uh, have been affected by evil things. And it scars our hearts and it is a troubling matter. But Lord, we rejoice this morning in the salvation of Jesus Christ that we will not be overcome by these things, that we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live. It is Christ who lives in us. Lord, we glory in these things this morning and we pray against evil things. We submit ourselves to you. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to guard us, Lord, by your salvation and by your shield upon us, Lord, as you are the one who is our protector. We pray that evil things would not come upon us in a way that is too much for us, but that you would fulfill your promise that in every temptation you would supply a way of escape, that we might walk in righteousness, that in every temptation that crushes us down, that you would come alongside us and minister to us and lift us up, Lord, that we might not be broken. We pray, Lord Jesus, that our hearts would be humble, that we would not take on the attitude of the king of Babylon or of Satan, that we would never want to raise ourselves up from the place of creature into the place of creator, that we would never desire ourselves to be worshiped, but always that we might make much of Jesus and that the salvation of Christ would be our boast. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.